So um, the first thing I'm going to do is just talk a little bit about the, something called Mind and Soul, which is an organization I run. And the main reason I say this is I think it's quite dangerous to come to a church and just sort of talk about mental health because it can open a whole can of worms. So um, at the back, there's some leaflets about Mind and Soul, and this is a bit of stuff about the website. We have got a huge website, which has got about 300 articles on it, about 100 free audio downloads, of which this might become one, um, a whole bunch of other things on there like forums and discussions, testimonies, all that sort of stuff. So please, if any issues are raised tonight, you know, I'm not going to do any sort of counselling or ministry or anything tonight, but please do go and have a look at the Mind and Soul website afterwards. Please take one of the flyers from the back. Tell your friends about it because one of the things we believe is sort of getting this kind of information and this sort of discussion out there because there's a lot of good stuff that the church does and perhaps being a little bit better trained in those areas would be good and there's also sometimes like any community there can be stigma within it as well so I'm quite passionate about decreasing stigma about mental health problems in the church it's one of the reasons I guess why you want a, a talk on mental illness which is which is great so um there's the, the, there's tons of stuff on the website so please if there's any questions that are raised tonight please go and look at that if people are not on the website or tinternet or whatever it is please ask someone who is and it's a fairly easy website to use um, there's also a couple of books which i've put somewhere um, for those of you who prefer reading there's a book on worry and there's a book on guilt which i'm one of the authors of and these are published by ivp and there's a few copies at the back and i think andrew's going to sort of loiter by the by the bookstore at the back. So please do grab one of those, particularly the idea, you know, worry. Jesus says, don't worry. So, you know, Christians ought not to worry. They ought to have faith. They ought to trust, etc. And it's, it's one of those great urban myths, isn't it, that Christians don't worry, particularly as Jesus about four verses later on says, when you worry. Um, you know, so clearly it's not about don't worry. And likewise, guilt, you know, shouldn't you feel forgiven as a Christian? Well, yes, you should if you've done something wrong and found Jesus. But actually, what if you haven't done something wrong and your brain is just designed to feel guilty and you're one of the people who just feels guilty um, for the, the world <laughs> in general? You know, so the guilt book's written for people who are Christians who struggle with guilt. And um, that's at the back as well. So please do take some of those resources away and spread the word if that makes sense. We're just going to start off just with a, a short video as well, which I hopefully is going to come up on the next, next kind of slide. So um, it's just a couple of minutes long. One in four people suffer from a mental health problem, but the effects of mental health are far more prevalent. Most people have got a friend or a relative who've suffered from some sort of mental health condition. And it's not as scary as it sounds. We all have a plan for how we expect our life to go. Struggling with an emotional or mental health problem probably wasn't part of that. But there is life after emotional and mental health problems. Churches across the country provide great examples of warm, loving and open community. It's such a shame when churches provide an environment which is stigmatising against people with mental health problems because that is not a helpful community. Often I'm told in my work, I'm not really going around, am I? Please don't tell me I'm mentally ill. Those words have such stigma attached, but yet they're crying out for help. Church can be the hardest place to admit that you're struggling with an emotional or mental health problem. Christians have often been afraid of going to see psychiatric services. They see them as almost an enemy instead of a resource, somewhere to go for help. 
The NHS has got a long history of working with some of the most deprived and needy people in society. The church also has the same history. It would be great if those two organisations could work in partnership. It's easy to be intimidated by issues of mental and emotional health, but if you want to learn how to support people in your church and community better, Mind and Soul can help you. The Mind and Soul website provides hundreds of articles, audio downloads and podcasts, videos, forums and social media. It's an opportunity to really engage the debate of faith, great psychology and psychiatry, and say, actually, this is a place where God is. Let's spend time investing in these resources. Let's learn from one another, and let's help those who need help the most. My name is Jonathan Clark. I'm the director for Premier Lifeline, the confidential telephone helpline. I'm a qualified mental health social worker, a church minister, and a sufferer of depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm Reverend Will van der Haag, and I'm a director of Mind and Soul. I'm also a sufferer from GAD, Generalised Anxiety Disorder. My name's Dr Rob Waller. I'm a consultant psychiatrist working for the NHS. I have so much respect for the people I see day in, day out, who live their whole lives with severe and enduring mental health problems. My name's Dr Kate Middleton. I'm a psychologist, but I don't work in a hospital. Working in the church offers me an amazing opportunity to mix with a wide range of people, supporting them where they're at and helping them get on the road to real recovery. So one in four people are going to have a mental health problem at some point. That probably means that about 15 people in this room at some point will have taken time off work due to anxiety, depression, something like that. My guess is five or six of you take antidepressants and possibly one of you takes an antipsychotic medication. So first rule of speaking is understand your audience. Um, is that true? Who Do you know? And I suppose... You know, one of the things is, you know, we're quite happy to sort of say, I've got cancer from having chemotherapy. Um, but, you know, actually sort of, I'm not going to ask you to do it. But supposing I was to say, put your hands up if you are taking or have ever taken antidepressants, how would you feel about doing that? And there's sort of two levels of stigma. One is it's something that perhaps is not particularly talked about anyway. And secondly, you know, we're meant to be open, aren't we, as, 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 as churches? But it's maybe something that has particular sort of issues for, for Christians. So... One of the things I just want to sort of talk a little bit about today is why is it important to get the church right on this? Why is it important to, to have topics like this discussed? And this is um, a picture by um, Peter Housen, one of the Glasgow boys, and it's of the third step of Alcoholics Anonymous. So Alcoholics Anonymous has got, you know, the first step is I'm an alcoholic. Second step is I cannot help myself. The third step is I sort out a higher power. Very similar to the gospel, really. I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I sought out someone who could help me. And, of course, AA is very much based on the gospel from that point of view. But the interesting thing in this picture is he's crawling out from underneath his tombstone of alcoholism, if that makes sense. And he's, he's not looking at the higher power. He's looking at the church. And isn't it, isn't it great to be here tonight in a church which is prominently on the corner of this, this new estate behind us, the older road there? You know, this is a very prominent building. And still there are churches on pretty much every street corner you go to in this country. And people look to them when they are in times of trouble. So it's really important when they come in that they feel that, I mean, obviously, appropriate disclosure and so on. We're not talking about sort of emotional bleh like this all the time, but appropriate disclosure. So when they say, do you know what? I'm really struggling with my mood. They're not greeted with, 
well, Jesus is all about joy, isn't it? You know, and which it's great to talk about our, our, our joy in God, but we need to be sort of sensible about that. Sometimes the light can be be too strong. Perhaps sometimes we need to admit our own our own darkness, don't we? As well, you know, it's really interesting. I, I talk to a lot of Christian leaders in particular, and the young the young leaders are always you know passionate and zealous, and you know go for it, and God can conquer everything. And you get chatting to some of the older guys, and they're sort of sitting there thinking, do you know what? I've been reading a little bit more about the Desert Fathers recently, or you know I've been reading some some Brendan Manning, and I've I've realised how amazing graces and how broken I still am despite having been a Christian leader for 40 years and I guess as perhaps I was 40 this year so I can say this as as we get on in life a little bit we're aware that life is perhaps not quite so simple as gospel equals happy forever after it's a bit more complex than that we still have ups and downs and perhaps we need to have churches that will welcome all kinds of people who come to them perhaps we also need to have the other view, which is we shine out, don't we? This is just a picture of the church sort of shining out into, into the city. And we have actually got a heck of a lot to offer because I was sort of joking a little bit earlier about the big society. But um, this idea that community is lacking, isn't it? The government can't give community. So what you've got here is you've got a really nice community, actually. And it's quite a nice size where people probably know each other. And it's exactly the kind of community that we ought to be creating. And there's loads of lonely people. There's loads of sad people. I remember one story about a, a journalist who was in um, the middle of nowhere in some refugee camp on, on Christmas Eve. And she did this documentary about how it was pitch black and it was just turning Christmas Eve. And she looked out across the refugee camp and she could see little fires of people, 20, 30,000 fires or something, you know, in this refugee camp. And around each of them was a group of people and they were all there in their mess in this refugee camp sharing a cup of coffee. And she said, imagine if you had a sort of X-ray camera looking at Edinburgh. What you would see is you probably see, you know, half a million light bulbs. But some of those light bulbs on Christmas Eve would be people gathered together sitting around our equivalent of a campfire, talking about life, coming to a watch night service maybe, something like that. But a lot of those light bulbs, people sitting by themselves at Christmas, people who are depressed, suicidal over Christmas. Today is Cap Sunday, Christians Against Poverty Sunday, which our church has been, been focusing on this morning. And, you know, John Kirkby, who founded that, he's, he said, actually, you know, most people who are in significant debt will contemplate taking their own life at some point because they feel so trapped so helpless. So as we shine out, there is tons and tons and tons that we can be, be offering to the world. And there's just a few things that are on the Minor Soul website which are helpful. One is, um, I'm quite sure it was going to come now, living life to the full with God. If you're into online stuff, this is an online course for anxiety and depression. Um, it's a Scottish government course which we have Christianized with the author's permission. Um, we're doing some stuff with livability about making churches dementia friendly, um, about producing a, a sort of pack for churches that they can sort of think about. Well, what would it mean to have a, a, a you know, if you can't find a friendly local psychiatrist like me, what, what, what would it mean to have a, a Sunday where you want to kind of raise this topic? And also, you know, partnering with the NHS to see these kind of topics discussed and um, and put out there. So we've got to get the church ready for people who will come to it, and people do come to it, and we've also got so much to offer the local community. You could run the Living Life to the Full course here. You can get 
You can get the media. Uh, you can get stuff delivered by post, you know, paper-based stuff, or you can run it from the Internet. You could run a course on anxiety and depression for your local community in exactly the same way you might run a, a money management course or something like that. You can take the Christian stuff out if you want, or you can leave it in. It's entirely up to you. It would be a great resource that this, this community would need. What I wanted to do today, it is an evangelical church, so I'm going to speak a little bit about how to do counselling, just to give you a, a sort of Bible passage as well. Um, so if you've got your Bibles, find John 21, and I thought it might be helpful just to get a little bit of, little bit of scripture in here, just so I'm not all speaking hot air. I'm just going to go through this pretty quickly, and then we'll sort of finish it up and have some time for questions at the end. So if you've got John 21, it's the last chapter. In John's gospel. So Jesus has died, risen again. He's had the barbecue on the beach. Isn't it great? Jesus has a barbecue. I like that as a sort of idea. Breakfast. Probably not overly many sausages, but um, it was probably still a pretty good barbecue nonetheless, I should expect. So John 21 verse 15. So this is Jesus talking to Simon Peter. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Less, yes, Lord, you know, I love you more than these. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all of these things. You know I love you. Jesus said, well, feed my sheep. And I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you stretched out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said to indicate by this the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the Last Supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered him, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. And that's the sort of story where Jesus reinstates Peter. Jesus, Peter, of course, is the one who has gone off and denied Jesus three times, um, while Jesus is being questioned and tested and Peter sort of comes into the courtyard and he denies Jesus three, three times and then goes away in, in, in great despair. And this is a, a picture that the barbecue apparently happened at a place called Tagba, which is on the northwest coast of Galilee. So there is the northwest coast of Galilee. And this sermon's used. This passage is used for a few different sermons, isn't it? It's, it's the sermon on sort of re, reinstatement, um, either, you know, someone who has gone away that, that God calls them back. Um, parts of the church obviously use it to say, well, this is the time when, when Peter became the first pope and, and became the leader of the church. They date it back to that. But one of the things I've heard this sermon done a number of times, on, and I hold my hand up as someone who's done this, is a sermon on how to do counselling. And it goes something like this. Um, Jesus makes Peter feel really, really painful. He asks him three times, do you love me? And it says Peter was hurt. And almost this idea that, you know, when we're talking about our past, our stuff, whatever it is, we're meant to sort of get to the bone at some point, aren't we? And it's meant to be personal and there's meant to be lots of snot and tears. And it's, it's meant to sort of feel bad because we've been bad and that somehow is is meant to be part of the catharsis that that, that that sort of moves us on and i guess when people go and see a counselor they expect it's going to be 
difficult. It's going to bring up some bad stuff. And to a certain extent, that's, that's true. But I'm not sure you get it from this passage, if that makes sense. The, the, the second thing is that, you know, it has to be personal. So Jesus is, um, Jesus and Peter are sort of walking, walking along the beach or something like this. And this other person who we, we know is John, the author of the, the gospel, is following along behind. And Peter keeps wanting to divert the topic onto the red herring of John. Oh, what about him? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's just thee and me, eye to eye. We've got to sort this out. So counseling's got to be personal. It's got to be two people in a room talking about really, really, really personal stuff. And again, you know, I'm not saying that counseling is not about going to rooms sometimes and having some counselling, but I'm not sure you get it from this passage. And the third thing people often sort of say is that counselling should be be permanent. And look at the amazing transformation that happened here. So Peter had been denying Jesus, and then he'd um, spent some time with Jesus, and now he he was sort of the leader of the church, the first leader of the church. And people will say things like, you know, if you do the counselling right, if you, particularly if you do biblical counselling and it, it's Bible-based, then if you do that and you, you sort out your theology and you sort out where your heart is and what your first love is, then you should be transformed and that should be sort of foundational. And again, I'm not saying that counselling can't be transformatory because I think it is sometimes to invest a period in your internal world, particularly if you've made a whole bunch of, muck-ups earlier on it's important to invest and it will see you in good stead for the future but I'm not sure you get it from this passage and people often sort of say well this is a great example where Jesus counsels Peter it's meant to be painful it's meant to be personal and it's meant to be permanent but the reality of course is that that wasn't Peter's story Peter had an ongoing rumbling temper he had it was an ongoing grumpy grumpy kind of person he was Crucified upside down. This is a picture of St. Peter, according to legend, who was crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified with Jesus. He didn't consider himself um, able to, to sort of die in the same way that Jesus died. He, he wasn't permanently fixed. He, he did a whole bunch of things wrong. He got mixed up about the Gentiles and the Jews. He got mixed up around the number of about circumcision, about not circumcision. He got confused about a whole bunch of issues. So he wasn't permanently fixed. He, he carried on having problems. And a better sort of interpretation of John 21 I want to try and give you is, is th- there are three counseling points to take away from this. But the first is that it's really about grace before works it's about the love of jesus before personal effort and there is personal effort in counseling but that's not primarily why there's pain it's about integration and about talking about these things in an open manner before we isolate people in a room and it's about redemption primarily it's primarily about restoring our relationship with god it's not about fixing your emotions it's not about being happy forever after that may or may not happen this side of heaven so now and not yet isn't it so three things grace but not works integration before isolation and redemption before recovery now one of the oops let's go back if i can how'd you go back there we go this is a sort of portrayal of a guy called Sisyphus. Sisyphus was a guy in, in 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 greek mythology who had to push a rock up a hill And he pushed the rock up the hill and he got to the top of the hill. And what happened to the rock? It rolled down the far side, didn't it? So the poor guy had to go to the bottom, round the far side and sort of sort of push it up, push it up the hill again. And when he got to the top, it rolled down the far side. And that's what he had to do for the rest of eternity. He was there with a bloke who had his liver eaten every day and it healed overnight. You know, nice 
punishments they had in Greek mythology. So, so this was Sisyphus' problem. And sometimes this is what it can be a little bit like, is that you feel, particularly you feel in counselling, as though you're doing this right. You're sort of pushing it up the hill. Or if you're doing something like cognitive behavioural therapy, you're, 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 you're pushing it up. You're pushing it up. And sometimes, I think one of the problems is when we sit down and actually think about what we need to address in our lives is you can get it right up here, but whether or not it ends up down here is to a certain extent not, not to do with us, is it? And one, of the, one of the problems about CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the big sort of therapy that the NHS is, is talking about, is it's, it's really, really good for about 70, 80% of people, but 20% of people it doesn't work for. And what if you're one of the people who it doesn't work for? Your temptation is to sort of think, well, I must be really stupid because this great thing doesn't work for me, or I must be really bad because I still feel bad after all of this. And I think sometimes with the gospel, it can be like that as well, isn't it? It's like, you know, if only I had more faith, like those people over there who seem to have got it all sorted. But in actual fact, I am really struggling with this. I'm, I'm really, really worried about this. And, you know, there's, there's, this thing sometimes happening in the, in, in the church as well, aren't we? Is there's, there's some people who, who don't seem to be able to sort of move on through things who don't seem to be able to sort of get their emotions sorted out like the majority of people and I guess it, it's, it's thinking about what we do with those kinds of people and I've, I've heard a whole bunch of things in, 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 in church ministries to sort of encourage people and really it's works dressed up rather than anything else it, it's works dressed up so you know people are, are dropped from a ministry team because they're currently depressed and they can't come along to the meetings so their commitment is, is questioned oh he's not interested um he just comes on Sunday and sits at the back. Therefore, we won't ask him to do anything important in the life of the church. But as a matter of fact, the guy's clinically depressed. You know, there's actually a problem going on here. Also, you know, perhaps if you go to Pentecostal churches, you might get told to sort of put money in the offering bucket. And to a certain extent, the suggestion is that the more you put in the offering bucket, the more you sow into this, the more you will reap in, in your own life. And there's lots of sort of works going on. Um, if you're not having enough faith for, for change perhaps that's because the gospel hasn't got far enough into your into your heart to change things a lot of this behavior is quite incipient and and comes in but again it comes back to that kind of thing remember i said the first thing that we often say from counseling from john 21 is that it's meant to be painful and we're meant to feel pain but actually i'm not not sure that that's what's going on between jesus and peter i think it's maybe more a little bit that jesus wants to do something really really important with peter doesn't he he wants him to be the leader of the first church. And what Jesus does is he, he says to him three times, do you love me? And Peter feels really awful at that moment, doesn't him? But then he says to him three really important things. He says to him, feed my sheep or feed my lambs or feed my church or build my church, whatever it is. He says to him those three things. And that's the key thing about the commissioning of Peter. It's even though he is broken, even though he has got it all horribly wrong, even though he's messed up, Jesus will still trust him to use his church. And I suppose it's an interesting thought, isn't it? Would you appoint a church leader with a significant mental health history? Hmm. Question. Who, this is a biblical trivia question, who was the second best evangelist in the New Testament? I'm not going to actually ask you to answer it. The best was obviously St. Paul because he went around and planted loads of different churches. The person who planted the next most churches after Paul was a guy who's familiarly known as the Gerasene demoniac. The guy who was self-harming, cutting himself. Some people say he had schizophrenia. I don't think he did because it's not like the schizophrenia that I see. But he definitely had fairly major 
issues. Possibly he was demon-possessed, he was definitely self-harming, he was unwashed, he was chained. He became an evangelist. At that point that he was set free, he became an evangelist to the ten towns, the ring towns called Decapolis. And Jesus said to him, he said, I want you to go and save those ten towns. And actually, if you look at history, he went out. So this, this guy planted ten churches and more or less saved these ten cities. And he was a guy who you would probably not have appointed as your pastor. You might have said to him, oh, we'll wait a couple of years just to make sure that the transformation is permanent. But no, Jesus saved him in that moment and and set him free to become the second best evangelist in the New Testament. And I think that's what's going on with, 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 with Peter here as well. He just, it's that moment, it's that don't go too far from the foot of the cross. We're not talking about success here. We're talking about remembering that great moment. Sometimes people say, why was Peter the greatest shepherd? Because he was the greatest sinner. And there's that sort of thing. He said, I want you to leave my church because I never want you to forget that. I never want you to forget what it's like to have betrayed me and still be asked to leave my church. That's what I want you to remember. And I think, you know, when we're talking about grace and works, and it's, it's not primarily about counseling being painful. It's primarily about remembering that Peter Jesus moment. Even though you are broken, God wants to use you in absolutely amazing ways. So perhaps we ought to be taking the most broken people and asking them to do the most amazing things rather than the people who seem to have it all sorted and perhaps don't know this deep. They've got it all up here, but how deep is it in their hearts? Second thing is, where does this counselling take place? We've got this idea where Jesus and Peter are sort of walking off down the beach and John's not allowed to, to intervene in this. So, so sometimes what you happen is, is you have... Mental health problems being dealt with in isolation. So on the right, you've got the sort of counselling room. You're lucky that one's got three chairs. Normally they have two chairs and you just go into the room with the counsellor with the obligatory box of tissues on the table, don't you? And great stuff is done in the room. But it's kind of behind closed doors or, you know, as I was saying earlier, perhaps you're not talking about the fact that you're seeing antidepressants or perhaps some of you are seeing a psychologist or having other forms of counselling as we speak. But you don't necessarily talk about it. It happens sort of over there behind a door doesn't it? And um, this is a picture of Hyroids, which is the old asylum in Yorkshire where, where I trained. And um, you can't see Hyroids from the main road. You, um, you start on the main road and you walk along and you, you come around what the, what the landscape gardeners used to call a reveal. Anyone who's ever been to sort of stately homes, you often sort of come around the corner and there's a reveal. And all of a sudden, you know, the sort of landscape gardens are sort of laid out before you and Chatsworth Manor or um, Downton Abbey or something is, is sort of laid out before you. But a lot of these places became mental hospitals and to use the old language, a lot of them were built. And the phrase grew up, oh, where's he? He's round the bend. And that's where people with mental health problems were put. They were put round the bend, out of sight, out of mind, literally out of mind. That's where the phrase comes from. So we have our mad in the asylums, out of sight, out of mind, round the bend. We have our counselling happening in the church. And we say that, oh, well, that's because you need to get personal. It needs to be a, a, a personal kind of thing. But actually... Some counselling doesn't need to be personal, but primarily where does healing happen? Healing happens 
in community, doesn't it? This, this sh- should be counselling. Now, obviously, I'm talking to you. It's a bit one way and all that kind of stuff. But go and have a coffee later or whatever you do on a Sunday night. That's counselling. Can I have a little rant about Romans chapter 12, where they talk about the renewing of the mind? Okay. I have no idea what the renewing of the mind is. People have been writing books about it for years. But I'll tell you what it's not. It's not about getting the theology police out. It's not about getting the thought police out. It's not about aligning your mind to the Bible. That's what's often said. I'll tell you why not. There's two reasons. First of all, Romans chapters 1 to 11 is basically trying to do that. It's basically all theology. Paul spends 11 chapters teasing out. I'm sure you've had sermons on it here. You know, teasing out theology, grace, this, that, that. He spends 11 chapters teasing out. At the end of that, he throws his hands up in the air and says, who can understand all of this? You know, I've I've done 11 chapters on it. I'm going to stop at this point. There's this great sort of doxology, this great sort of few verses in Romans chapter 11, where he basically says, I don't know what's going on here. Who can understand the mind of God? Who can search the depths of his mercy? So we're going to stop doing some theology. So when you get to Romans 12, verse 1, please don't start doing theology again to try to renew your mind. It would seem a little bit silly to me. The other reason why it's not about renewing your mind is in Romans 12 and 13, which are the great passages in the church about community and about fellowship, every single time the word you is mentioned, it's a plural. It's a vu, not a tu. So when it says renewing your mind, it means renewing your mind. It's a you thing. It's about you as a group of people in your community, talking about those who appear to have slightly more renewed minds, but actually are still just as broken and should never have gone too far from the foot of the cross. Those who perhaps need help and support, but actually maybe are going to go on and be evangelists to 10 towns at some point in the future. So, so... When we think about renewing our minds and changing our minds, we've got to do it corporately and together. And a great illustration from this is is the film A Beautiful Mind, where um, uh, John Nash, who's the um, uh, great economist of the future, is is played by Russell Crowe, and he develops schizophrenia, basically. He's... He is a, a professor and a student. He's probably had it for a while, but certainly he, he gets gets married to this, this woman. And she can't afford to let his mental health ha- problems happen over there because, first of all, she's got a young baby together with, with him, and, and also she has to carry on living their lives. So I'm just going to sort of play this clip about what dealing with stuff in community might look like. Just put that up there just to, would it be great if we could have some of those kind of conversations in our fellowships? I don't know if you have home groups. I don't know if you have an opportunity. It would be really wonderful, wouldn't it, if everybody had the opportunity to at some point to be asked, how are you? No, really, how are you? And to be able to speak like that and still be loved, wouldn't it be great to have someone speak about you like that that even though perhaps you're going through quite a difficult time and you're quite difficult to live with that they still see you in that kind of kind of way so it's quite a difficult difficult clip but um that's why counseling can't be personal it's personal sometimes perhaps you need to do some work some sessions but it needs to be in in the wider community as well on on the inside of my wedding ring it says romans 13 verse 8 let no debt remain outstanding but the debt that we have to love one another It's one of those great community passages. Okay. Redemption before recovery as well. There's um, one of my favorite poems is is the Footprints poem. And this is the ad lib version of the Footprints poem. My child, I never left you. You see those places. You know the Footprints poem. If you don't, I'll 
tell it anyway. Many of you do, I'm sure. There's two footprints, two sets of footprints walking along. And then there's a time when there's only one set of footprints. And then eventually at the end, there's two sets of footprints in the sand. And God says, my child, I never left you. Those places with one sets of footprints, that was where I carried you. The long groove over there is where I dragged you for a while. I'm sure we can all sort of resonate with that. Sometimes actually God, God does have to, 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 to drag us along. Um, and then, of course, uh, one time I hid in the little sand hole while I got a hot dog. Hopefully God doesn't do that to us. But... There is a sense, isn't there, in that the, the, the grace is the church's best kept secret. You know, we all love that kind of idea from the Footprints poem, that there's this time where, where God is carrying us, but we're so blooming keen to walk on our own two feet, aren't we? We're, we're, we're so keen to sort of, you know, save by grace and living by works. And, uh, you know, none of us want to admit that we're taking antidepressants or antipsychotics or that we've been in a uh, psychiatric hospital at any point in the past. We don't want to talk about that kind of stuff. Or if we do, it wants its, you know, that nice lush testimony, one of those sort of, um, risky testimonies. We all slightly wish we had the risky testimony, don't we? But actually, we prefer to have a nice, safe sort of, sort of testimony, not to have any ongoing problems. So, so grace is the church's best kept secret. But it's such a shame, isn't it? Because there's all kinds of people there. Who out of this top list is, is the self-harmer? Is it, is it the um, nurse? Is it the doctor? Is it the professional? Is it the military person? Is it the, the nun? You, you can't spot self-harm. Because you cover it up with your clothes. It's very simple. The other thing about self-harm is it works to a certain extent, doesn't it? It, it, it does work to control emotions. So some of you could self-harm. I don't know. Um, you can't spot self-harm. Um, little thing at the bottom. Label people. That's, that's how you know where you are. They're in trouble. They're a backslider. They're weak. They're a heretic. They're, they're reliable. And I think sometimes that's what we do is we sort of say, oh, you know, they're the person with, with the mental health problem or they're the person with the addiction problem or something like that. Whereas in actual fact, we're all sort of messed up and broken in various different ways. And the thing about the Footprints poem is you don't know whether or not in the future you've got a long groove ahead of you. And you don't know whether you've got a period where you're going to have a single set of footprints going along. I remember talking to someone, it was in a big big sort of Pentecostal church, and the, the essence of the conversation went, um, oh, I need to be really careful not to be friends with depressed people because they might drag me down. And I must confess, I just let them have it with both barrels and just said, pity you when life throws you a lemon. Pity you when life throws you a lemon, because we don't know in the future when this kind of stuff is, 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 is going to be leading us. There's all kinds of different solutions to mental health problems, aren't there? So um, the brain is perhaps one of the sort of causes that you might have. Um, the picture there is of, of, of um, Rogers, the, the sort of founder of humanist therapy or person-centered therapy. So, you know, we, we, we think maybe it's all about talking. Um, is it about fundamentally people are isolated? The, the, the social work sort of model of mental health problems is when people are isolated, they become unhappy. And actually what we need to do is we need to, to integrate people. Or is it about um, the, the, a spiritual problem? Is depression a, a spiritual problem that we don't understand how much God loves us? And one of the problems, of course, is that we all have our own particular drum to bang. So um, people who believe that depression or schizophrenia or whatever is caused by a particular chemical in the brain think you need to have pills. People who um, perhaps have experienced therapy themselves and know its value say, oh, you need to go and, 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 and have a, uh, some counselling or you really need to talk this through. Um, Christians always wanted to pray about it, either for, for peace or for, for healing or, or whatever it is. And um, social workers always wanted to build integrated societies. Um, but of course, all of these things are not true as a whole, are they? So for example, even if I fix your brain biochemistry, 
you might still be unhappy because unhappiness and loneliness are not mental health problems. So you need the integrated society. Even if you talk everything to death and you become at peace with your past, it doesn't give you a hope and a future. Only God can give you that. Even if you pray about all these various different things, praying about it doesn't fix every mental health problem, does it? In fact, it doesn't fix any physical health problem. It says in the Bible, gastroenterologists, a little wine is good for your stomach. One of my favorite verses, so I'm sure Andy prescribes that on a frequent basis. Um, Paul left Eutychus sick and went off on a different journey. There's many examples in, in the New Testament of healings not happening in the same way there's examples of healings happen. So it's not all a spiritual solution. And likewise, you can build the most wonderful community of people who are corporately alive and spiritually dead. So I believe that good mental health problems are about an integrated approach to all of this, that we need to have medication. Why would you take medication for cancer and not for depression? I do not know why. Some people think it's because you mustn't have stuff interfering in your brain because that's where God lives. I mean, we've kind of discussed that already. My God doesn't live in here. But some Christians think I mustn't take anything that interferes with that. Well, I'll let you into a secret. Paracetamol acts on the brain. Okay, so never take paracetamol again if that's your theology. Well, tell you the pharmacology later if you want to. Um, Morphine dampens the mind, doesn't it? But you take that if you had cancer. Why wouldn't you take something perhaps with sedative side effects if you had a severe psychotic illness? So let's be open about medication. Let's be open about talking. You know, I mean, I know it's sort of stiff up a lip and, you know, we're sort of from Edinburgh. We don't really talk about emotions and that sort of thing, do we? But, you know, let, let, let's talk. It's good to talk, isn't it? Let, let's take the stigma out of all of these things. Let's pray for healing. Let's pray in faith that God works and heals today. But let's be compassionate and journey with people when he doesn't. And let's try to build an integrated society where anyone can come in, even if they're in a wheelchair, even if perhaps one of those people is a self-harmer and perhaps one of them um, has has a diagnosis of schizophrenia. So let's have an integrated society. And that's one of the sort of thoughts I'd like to, to sort of leave you with, is to sort of think, well, how can I do more about this in Edinburgh?